The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, everyone. You are listening to the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world, the Late Morning Program. I'm here with a dear devotee, dear friend, Hari Kirtan Prabhu, who I've known for uh, many, uh, many, many years. Hari Kirtan Prabhu, thank you so much for joining me. Namaras Prabhu, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you very much for inviting me to spend some time with you. Yes, yeah, so I was, I'm very impressed, uh, Hari Kirtan Prabhu, with your uh, way you present Krishna consciousness, the way you present bhakti to a new audience, and I, I want to get into that. But before that, I'd like to know a little bit more about your background, how you came in contact with spirituality, Krishna consciousness. So let's start there. Okay. Um, I had the good fortune of being in the right place at the right time. A child of the 60s living outside of New York City, 60s counterculture kid. Um, so I grew up just sort of knowing there was such a thing as the Hare Krishnas. Um, right. Uh, I suppose, if for, uh, no other way, uh, the musical hair, uh, pay on to hippie culture, uh, featured the Hare Krishna mantra. So it was just kind of in the air uh, for me. And I remember the very first time I saw devotees, I convinced my parents to take me and my friends when I was about 14 or so to Greenwich Village. Uh, now, I was already familiar with the city. I was living on Long Island. My father's business was in the financial district. Um, my other relatives lived in the city or in, uh, near, nearby. So uh, I, we were in Cafe Figaro, which at the time was on the corner of Bleecker and McDougal. And Hari Nam Party came by. And this was probably, I don't know, 1970, 71, maybe. So I think the devotees were still on Second Avenue, one of the locations on Second Avenue. Um, anyway, they came by and I was like, what's that? <laughs> uh, and my parents said, sit down. <laughs> and then they came back the other way. And uh, anyway, so I was kind of just fascinated by you know, part of this is part of the counterculture scene in the East, uh, in the, in the West village. Um, a few years later, uh, my group of friends in high school were all the kind of kids who were really interested in spiritual philosophy. Uh, we were all reading Ram Dass's be here now and books by J Krishnamurti. And, uh, somebody even had, a new invention called a video uh, cassette player, which was about the size of my desk, I think. Um, and we were watching videos of a um, Sikh guru. That was just that was just our idea of a good time, is to um, explore that kind of thing, and. Uh, eventually, uh, Srila Prabhupada's books, whatever books were uh, out in, in 1972, and particularly his big 
colorful, soft cover Bhagavad Gita made its way to the table in the open study hall where my friends and I uh, hung out. Um, and so that was the first time I actually came in contact with Srila Prabhupada's books. And I didn't like them. I, I, I Once I started reading it, I just, I, I remember in particular reading uh, the little Reservoir of Pleasure pamphlet. And I thought, this doesn't even rise to the level of mythology. This is fairy tales. Uh, I don't see how anyone can take this seriously. You might as well tell me that the universe was created by a school of cosmic dolphins. Uh, <laughs> not buying it. Um, and the group of friends I was with kind of broke into two different camps. The Hare Krishna camp, because there was a, a group that was like super into it. And the other camp that I was part of, which was really more like into Taoism and Zen and that sort of thing. So I had a couple of friends who the day after they graduated from high school, shaved up, moved into the Brooklyn Temple. Wow. And I, uh, after high school, pursued a very not lucrative career uh, in experimental electronic music and art. Really? <laughs> wow. Yeah, this is back when everything was analog. It's like VCS3 synthesizers and close mic percussion with echo machines and no, nothing MIDI, nothing digital, that sort okay. of stuff. Wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was fun uh, for like a, you know, psychedelic teenager to pursue such a Quixotic uh, <laughs> adventure and <laughs> uh, didn't really didn't really make very much money doing that uh, nor was there much fame or any of the other things that you know one hopes uh, to get in a music career um, it went so well uh, that in due course of time I found myself living in uh, an unfinished basement of a Soho gallery in Manhattan. And uh, since I didn't actually know how to do anything that anyone would pay me for, uh, I got a job as, uh, uh, I got a job that is uh, extinct at this point uh, because once upon a time, there was no internet. <laughs> I know that's really hard for a lot of people to believe, but it's true. And the only way to get a document from an office in a building on one side of Midtown Manhattan to an office in a building on the other side of Midtown Manhattan was to mimeograph it, look it up, uh, <laughs> you make, make a copy of it, uh, and hand it to someone who would then walk across town and bring it to that building. Well, that was my job. I was a foot messenger. Wow. And I spent all day uh, just walking around Manhattan, delivering bundles of documents. And it occurred to me that I wanted to somehow or other spiritualize this experience. And there was, I had done mantra meditation before. Uh, usually I was chanting Shiva mantras to make my ganja sacred 
<clears throat> that sort of thing. Uh, I hadn't chanted the Hare Krishna mantra, and I thought, all right, it's symmetrical, uh, and therefore I can walk, chant it in my mind, and breathe all in unison. And that's what I did for eight hours a day. Now, at the same time, the devotees had moved to West 55th Street, and things had grown quite a bit, and they had prasadam carts. Uh, in, on the streets of New York, you have these little carts where you can sell food, pretzels or whatever. And so they had prasadam carts out on the street. And so I would, I was, I'd been a vegetarian since I was 16. So I went to the prasadam carts. It was cheap. It was delicious. And it was vegetarian, which was not always easy to find, even in New York City. So I was eating at the prasadam carts. And then I found out, oh, they have a restaurant downstairs. So I started going to the restaurant almost every night. So here I am, I'm walking around Manhattan all day, chanting Hare Krishna, eating prasadam. And there was someone that I saw almost every time I left the restaurant. I would come in, he wasn't there. He was a very, very cheerful uh, and yet very serious uh, and very formidable looking devotee who sat on a bench with a mridunga on his lap outside of the restaurant. And I would walk out and he would look at me with this combination of cheerfulness and seriousness. And every time he saw me, he would say the same exact thing. Just chant Hare Krishna and your life will be successful. And I thought, he's crazy. <laughs> he must be crazy. And one day after I'd been doing this for a while, I had the experience, one of these experiences where like the sky opens up, something happens that like you just remember. Yeah. I was walking east on the south side of 42nd Street between 6th and 5th Avenues alongside the Bryant Park behind the main <clears throat> branch of the New York Public Library. And I had this experience where my whole inner world was slowing down while the rest of everything in New York was just zipping by me. And a thought entered my head. And the thought was, I am accountable for a bazillion lifetimes of karma and I'm not doing anything about it. Wow. Oh my gosh. Now, I'd already totally embraced the idea that karma was a thing. That's why I became a vegetarian. I realized that, oh, I can't be like responsible for killing chickens if I'm going to make any spiritual progress. And I had already kind of intuited that I was eternal. This actually happened many years prior. Uh, when I was a kid, someone tried to explain 
physics to me, you know, glorifying Albert Einstein, the law of conservation of energy. And when I heard that energy could not be created or destroyed, only transformed, my reaction to that was, I'm a form of energy, therefore I cannot be created or destroyed. Wow. Now, when you're a little boy, that's a dangerous realization because you already have like that sense of invincibility from, you know, just being young. Right. So anyway, so I'd already long embraced these two ideas that I was an eternal being and that uh, reincarnation made sense to me. And therefore I uh, had karma that I didn't want any more bad karma and good karma was also still keeping me here. So there must be something beyond that. Anyway, so I have this thought, this realization. And it was really like a thunderbolt because I thought this should be like the first and foremost priority of my life is like getting rid of all this karma that I'm accountable for because it's not all good. And I, I didn't even know what it all would be. And then I thought, all right, this realization, I have to attribute this to the fact that I've been chanting this mantra now for weeks because nothing else is different. And so I started to go to the temple and make a little more of an inquiry. Like what's the logic behind this preposterous proposition that God is a little blue flute playing cowherd boy? You know, tell me how that makes any sense at all. And so I started hanging out there and hearing there. And then uh, someone told me that, uh, you know, you, you could live here. And I thought, hmm, I'm living in an unfinished basement in a gallery down in Soho. Anything they offer me here is going to be a step up from that. And I'll be a lot closer to the restaurant. So I inquired about, okay, well, how do I, how do I do that? Well, you know, go talk to this guy up on the sixth floor. Now I didn't actually understand what was going on. I was actually being recruited into the Bhakta program. <laughs> I didn't actually get that. I thought I was talking about renting a room. Right, right. So I go upstairs and I go to the office that they told me to go to. And who do you think is there? the devotee who was always sitting on the bench with the Mridanga on his lap, who told me every single night, just chant Hare Krishna and your life will be successful. And that was Urjasvat Prabhu. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. So Urjasvat, who would go on to become my first real spiritual mentor, my kirtan uh, guru, and a person who I will never forget uh, and always be... Um, immeasurably grateful for uh said okay yeah sure you can you can have a room here here's where you can stay and such like that uh and i said okay well what about paying rent and he said well go downstairs talk to the temple commander so i went down to the temple commander's office very very serious to the point of looking like dangerous devotee. <laughs> very, very, you know, all about the business. I sat down. I said, you know, Urjasvat told me to come down here and talk to you about paying rent for staying here. 
And we talk for a little bit and he says, okay, so your rent will be that you come to the morning program every morning. You know, more of like, I don't really understand what's happening here. <laughs> I think, oh, well, this guy's not as smart as I thought he was. He's not as smart as he looks. I was offering to give him real money. He's telling me to do something I was going to do anyway. I kept that job for two more weeks. And then it finally occurred to me, what do I need this job for? <laughs> Everything here is free. <laughs> They're not, you know, I was just at the point where I was starting to realize that it wasn't actually free. I was going to actually give everything. Right. But materially, I had nothing. It was like, I can be a renunciate. I don't have anything. What am I going to give up? And that is how I came to move into the West 55th Street Temple and uh, become a Hare Krishna devotee. Wow. That's amazing. I love that. Urjaswat Prabhu is, uh, is, for those of you who don't know, he was like one of the most legendary New York, one of the New York Kirtaniyas like of that time, like very uh, beautiful singer, Murdunga player, and just like an amazing person. I knew him in his later years um, when he was, I think he was living in Texas, and he came mm -hmm. up for... Um, the Bhakti Center had their anniversary of Radha Murlidhar and he, I picked him up at the airport and we kind of developed a relationship and he, uh, just a really fantastic devotee, um, we're just Swat Prabhu. Um, he was incredibly charismatic, yeah. very, very funny. Um, and he led awesome kirtans. Yes, yes. So um, I guess what I want to talk about now, Prabhu, is that, you know, you were in the ISKCON framework for many, many years. And now fast forwarding until until now, mm -hmm. uh, you're you're kind of you have uh, written a book that we'll talk about later. But share Krishna consciousness in your own way, um, kind of outside that ISKCON framework. Um, so can we just talk a little bit about how that happened and 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 how you feel doing that and kind of that whole topic? Sure. Um Over the years, I have uh, tried to be of service to uh, ISKCON to work within the um, institutional framework. Uh, that usually didn't work out too well for anybody, uh, probably especially for ISKCON. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know from having uh, been at the uh, Tawako Temple. Uh, now, I, I was there 96 to 98, I suppose. Yeah. So. Uh, the age differential between us meant a lot more back then. <laughs> <laughs> I was like 11, you know, 11. Yeah, so, something like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, you know, my attempts to be of service to Srila Prabhupada's mission within his institution didn't always go all that smoothly. Um, I found myself doing services I wasn't particularly adept at. Um, and... I kind I kind of after that I I, I um, wandered away. I was I kind of wandered off into the wilderness for a while, frankly. And there were a lot of other circumstances just in my personal life that um, needed to be resolved before I could uh, find my way back. And as that happened, 
as I um, work my way back just into my own uh, personal spiritual life, um, I felt the call to, to once again do the one thing that I seem to be good at, uh, which both from a, a sharing of spiritual understanding to anything else I ever uh, attempted to do, I seem to have a talent for getting ideas out of my head into someone else's head. Um, whatever, whatever kind of professional career I uh, managed to make for myself, that always seemed to be a part of it. Uh, training or communications, marketing, stuff like that. Right. Um, I moved to Washington, D.C. From, from New York. Um, and I was... Um, before, we, uh, no, let me backtrack a little bit. While I was still in New York... Um, I was uh, developing, uh, you know, just kind of redeveloping some relationships with devotees. And my friend Yogeshwar Prabhu uh, was giving Bhagavad Gita classes at the Jiva Mukti Yoga Center in New York. And he invited me to have uh, lunch with him and the manager of the studio. And I was doing I was doing video production work at the time, so when uh, Yogeshwar introduced me to the manager, um, the manager said, "Hey, we actually need a video done for promoting the Jiva Mukti Studio." Okay, we'll give you a proposal. Gave him a proposal, and uh, he said, "This is twice as much as we can spend. Can I give you the rest in yoga classes?" And it was thousands of dollars worth of yoga classes. <laughs> And uh, we said, okay. And that meant that I could afford to take private yoga classes because they just really, you know, it's kind of a barter deal. And as soon as I saw the Jiva Mukti Yoga way of doing things, I realized, oh, I need to become a teacher of Jiva Mukti Yoga because the format was you chant, you speak a little yoga philosophy, you do the physical practice, you do some meditation. I mean, it was basically custom made. Uh, where the expectation was that now I'm going to inject chanting and philosophy into the class. Right. And fortunately, um, karmically, uh, I inherited reasonably athletic genes from my father. So even at, uh, even though I was already a little older than one would normally be to take a yoga teacher training, I, I was able to get up to speed on the physical part of the practice reasonably quickly. Um, then we moved to Washington, D.C. I had not yet taken the teacher training. Um, and I was speaking to my god sister, Tulsi Priya. Uh, and I was telling her, you know, D.C. is great. Everything's fine, except that um, we don't have any association because the temple's all the way out in the suburbia. We don't have a car. Um, and I don't even know if that really is like the congregation that we'd fit into well, so we just don't have any association. And so she said, well, I guess you'll have to make your own. And I thought, okay, well, let me start doing that. So I went to a local studio 
And I introduce myself with my spiritual name. Now, a lot of times, you know, devotees don't do that. They have like split personalities where in like one world they have one name and, you know, in the devotee world we have our spiritual name. So I went into the yoga community and said, my name is Hari Kirtan Das. And the studio owner immediately said, if your name is Kirtan, then you must know something about Kirtan. Could you do a Kirtan at the studio? And I said, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I started doing Kirtans at this yoga studio three mornings a week at seven o'clock so that people could come and chant before they went to work. And people showed up. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Uh, uh -huh. We had, you know, not a lot of people, but enough so that uh, it became a thing. I started, so that's how I got started integrating myself into the local yoga community. Then I went to India. Uh, and after all this time, uh, it was actually my first trip to India. I spent a month, um, a little bit of time in Govardhan, the rest in Vrindavan. And I was there. Um, there's a devotee, someone that uh, uh, many devotees know, uh, his name is uh, Vibhu Chaitanya, and he was famous yes. for his extraordinary pure devotional service. And I happened to be there when he left his body. Oh, wow. Um, I uh, accompanied the procession down to, to the Jamuna for his uh, cremation. And I was walking back with Burijan Prabhu, also someone who um, I... Uh, consider a kind of shiksha guru, a, a instruction, instructing guru. And on the way back, he turned to me and he said, Hari Kirtan, you need to become a teacher. It would be good for you. It would be good for other people. It's your nature to do it. You f figure out a way to do it. Wow. And I thought, all right, that's the last straw. As soon <laughs> as I got back to Washington, D.C., I took the yoga teacher training and became officially a yoga teacher. And I was already known in the Washington, D.C. yoga community. So it was... Uh, I got opportunities to teach relatively quickly. And I also had the chutzpah of immediately decide, deciding that I was going to be like a yoga teacher rock star with a website and all that stuff. And so, uh, and I realized that if I was going to be successful, I had to do something that was very, very counterintuitive for devotees. I had to engage in shameless self-promotion. Right. We don't do that. <laughs> that's that's that, such a good point. Yeah. Uh, it's not second nature to us at all. In fact, it's something that is very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I realized this is the austerity I am going to have to perform in order to be successful. Because uh, no one else is going to do it for me. You know, it's not like I'm some well-known uh, guru with disciples and, you know, I, I have to do this myself. So, you know, um, odd as it felt, I, you know, I went ahead and did it and I slowly built it up. I, and I had to do everything pretty much myself. I had, I got help. I found people, um, you know, who could help me do this sort of thing. And the way I found them, um, was through yoga teacher trainings. Um, I was teaching for a relatively short period of time before, uh, while at the same time, I still had another side gig. Uh, basically, 
simultaneously working as a freelance videographer and also doing yoga teaching. I had one big video client, big corporation. And so all my eggs were in that one big basket. Yeah. And one day everything changed and I got a call from the head of the department I was working with. And she said, full stop. Um, everything's changing here. We'll let you know we're going to pick it up again. And I knew that was the end, that they were not going to pick it up again, that everything would be different. And I had to choose. Am I going to look for more video clients or just try to be a full-time yoga teacher? And I knew what I wanted to do. I just burned the boats on the beach and headed into the jungle with my machete and became a full-time yoga teacher. And as <laughs> soon as I did that, I started getting offers to, it wasn't even just offers. Krishna made arrangements for me uh, to do uh, guest teaching at yoga teacher training programs, which allowed me to charge enough so that I could kind of support myself because a yoga teacher teaching regular yoga classes, it's not that you make about as much money doing that as you do um, playing experimental electronic music on analog instruments. So gradually, uh, you know, I just kept building it up to the point where um, I could offer my own yoga teacher trainings. Now, all along, I'm teaching Sanskrit chanting. I'm teaching uh, concepts uh, of yoga philosophy from the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, that's what people started to know me for. I became the philosophy guy um, or the Sanskrit guy. And I just kept embedding our philosophy into whatever I was teaching. Uh, and at one point when it seemed viable, I started doing Zoom classes. This was in 2018, so before everybody jumped on Zoom thanks to the pandemic. Right. And I uh, did Bhagavad Gita classes and I just went from the first verse to the last verse over a two year period, just happened to work out to 108 classes, very convenient, uh, over a two year period. So, um, and around the same time, actually just before that, I had written my book. And the book is a compendium of edited uh, transcripts. There you go. There's the book, In Search of the Highest Truth, Adventures in Yoga Philosophy. Um, and it's composed of uh, edited transcripts of conversations between myself and students in yoga teacher training programs. Um, and the feedback I got from it was pretty good. Uh, that they were the kind of, they addressed the kind of questions that people actually had. Um, it was conversational, so therefore it was all kind of accessible. So, you know, I, I it's, it's hardly, it's not exactly a New York Times bestseller, but uh, it uh, has been steady. And it's a good introduction to, you know, how I present uh, our philosophy. And now it's, it's gotten to the point where I'm able to do everything uh, online. Um, I, I, I was a pandemic thriver. Um, oh, I don't have to leave the house? Yeah, right. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, so, so, um, so I'm doing everything now on Zoom. I have a, I'm using a platform called circle.so. It's similar to... Um, Mighty Networks, which is what the Bhakti Center uses for their community. Um, and that way, people that I'm working with um, 
uh, can interact with each other as well as uh, speak to me. I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one mentorships as well. And I uh, meet with people every week or every other week to uh, help them see how to integrate Krishna consciousness into their lives in a practical way. Um, it's been very rewarding. And none of this happened, as you pointed out, you know, none of this happened within the ISKCON framework. Uh, nobody told me to do this. Nobody asked me to do it. I'm operating completely outside of the chain of command. Um, I have, fortunately, I, I live in an uh, area where the local community leader is uh, very progressive and super supportive, uh, both morally supportive and logistically supportive. Whenever uh, we have done kirtan programs or satsang programs, um, she's there with, you know, prasadam or whatever we need. Um, for my yoga teacher training uh, on uh, Friday nights, we had prasadam delivery from the temple. Um, wow. Just awesome support. Yeah. Um, so if there's a moral to the story, uh, or if I'm providing an example of something that devotees can do, <clears throat> it's that you don't have to wait to be told what to do. Uh, you don't... Um, have to operate strictly within the chain of command. You can just take the initiative to do something that I call in-reach right. as opposed to outreach. Usually what we do is we stand at the edge of our bubble and say, hey, come on in, the water's fine. Um, and what I did was something different. I became a part of somebody else's community and brought Krishna consciousness into that community. And then a sub-community evolved um, from that. Can you and, give an example like what that, what a community, what what is that community? Does that mean the yoga community? Yeah. So I became a member of the yoga community. Right. Um, and over time, uh, a prominent enough member of the yoga community so that uh, Yoga Alliance, the major, the, the one uh, trade organization for yoga in, in America um, asked me to start doing Zoom classes on their platform, which gave me an opportunity to reach a very large number of people. Uh, and I have like four, four workshop series that I did for them, uh, plus a few other little guest spots. Mm -hmm. um, so by becoming a member of somebody else's community, namely the yoga community, um, I became the Hare Krishna guy, or one of, in the, in the yoga community, I'm one of the Hare Krishna guys. I mean, that's, uh, that's an obvious place for us to be. So in Washington, uh, I have a god sister who's also got a yoga studio here, and, you know, she's doing, uh, you know, being a, the Hare Krishna yoga studio owner. Um, and of course, there are other prominent folks like Raghunath and such like that who are um, teaching in uh, large, on a, you know, on a, on a big stage. Uh, plenty of, of uh, devotee teachers on on smaller stages doing wonderful, wonderful work. Um, what has your realization been with self the self promotion thing? Because I I think that's incredibly important in this day and age right now because it's it's a lot about you know the presentation 
the personality um and and people flock towards that like for example like this is not a good example but there's that movie you know kumare where that guy became like that yogi he was just a kid yeah. from new jersey he was like down the street grew up down the street from me and he became uh-huh. this like huge uh, like people followed him and even after he you know the ending was like okay uh i'm not a yogi i'm just a normal guy and people still felt like they still said that they felt some kind of spiritual thing so what has been your experience doing self-promotion as a devotee yourself like it's not something that's recommended because it's like self it's like aggrandizement and there's pratishta involved and all that stuff so what has been Mm -hmm. your realization doing that my realization is that um it's you have to just see it as part of your service right um there's there's not really much getting around it if you want to um you know if you if you want to do this kind of inreach instead of outreach um it's just part of the culture uh that we're in right now that that uh, a certain amount of uh, self-promotion is just expected and is acceptable. Um, So the realization is just that this too can be a service. Uh, Ravindra Saruprabhu talked about how anything can be dovetailed in Krishna consciousness except sense gratification. Um, So if I'm promoting myself for the sake of my ego, well, that's one thing. If I understand that it's an, just a necessary part of building up uh, the opportunity for people to hear about Krishna, um, if um, if I'm going to be successful. Uh, doing my part as an individual to uh, further Srila Prabhupada's mission of bringing Lord Chaitanya's movement to the Western world. Right. That, that it just goes with the territory. Um, so it's an austerity. And it's an acceptable austerity um, if you see it as service as opposed to um, self-aggrandizement. Self-promotion is not necessarily um, self-aggrandizement. Uh, it's really just about right. what is your attitude about it. Right, right, right. That's that's, that's true. Um, let's talk about the book. Um, so this book, The In Search of the Highest Truth, Adventures in Yoga Philosophy, I wanted to kind of talk about what was the thinking behind creating this book as well as is this something that could be a bridge towards to sometimes they say okay um these introductory books introduce you to the higher books or the 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 main scriptures so to say um Mm -hmm. so what was the thought behind this book first of all some of it was that um you know there are uh there are aspects of uh, Srila Prabhupada's books, uh, let's take Bhagavad Gita as it is, um, 
that can uh, be showstoppers for people. Um, they can also obviously have, uh, you know, the effect that the presentation of a pure devotee of Krishna is going to have. Right. But you may have to get past some of those showstoppers to get there. So, uh, for example, in, in Srila Prabhupada's introduction, he, he uses the um, arguably anachronistic uh, example of a woman being controlled by her husband. Right. Well, in the yoga world, you're talking about like 80% women, none of whom are interested in being controlled by their husband. Uh, and so when they, if they read that, that, you know, that's going to be like, okay, I don't need to read this book. Um, so establishing, uh, value, uh, in first of all, reading Bhagavad Gita and then specifically reading Bhagavad Gita as it is presented by a devotee of Krishna, as opposed to anybody else, is part of the function that um, I hope the book serves um, because it is presenting the same philosophy uh, without the potential showstoppers that might uh, um, prevent someone from getting past the introduction or getting past the first chapter. Yeah. Um, so that was part of it. Um, and also by that, by the time I'd written the book, that was in 2017. Uh, by the time I'd written it, I had been involved in uh, teaching yoga teacher training programs for about seven years, which is how long they say it takes for you to be an expert in something. Uh, and I felt I'd really had a handle on how to engage with people in a way that would get them invested in the exploration. Um, so here's, here's another thing that I'm doing that I think is a little different from the way we usually do things. Usually when a devotee is in the position of uh, taking the seat of the teacher, uh, wise man speaks, wah, 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 any questions. Right. And one of the things I had to adjust to uh, when I first started teaching yoga, you know, I'm used to the teacher t speaks for 40 minutes <laughs> right. and, then, and then asks if there are any questions. Whereas in a yoga class, you got five minutes yeah. or people are going to start to wonder when they're going to start to move. So I had to master the art of uh, being very succinct in, in dropping a little nugget of transcendental knowledge and then let's do the class. Yeah. But the other thing I started doing was I started asking questions of my audience right out of the bat. What do you think of this? Here's an idea that's proposed by yoga philosophy. What do you think of that? And that way I got people involved in the conversation right away. And now they're invested in speaking with me. And they may be speaking something that we would regard as serious nonsense. And that meant I had to develop the patience to listen to a lot of speculation, a lot of uninformed 
guesswork about what spiritual life means and not just wait for them to stop speaking, but actually listen to what they were saying so that I would know how to respond in order to uh, tell them something that they're actually interested in, meet the needs that they were expressing that they had, um, reposition something or show something from an angle of vision that might actually work for them. And uh, some devotees, senior devotees who had seen me do this, um, commented that they themselves did not have the patience to listen to as much stuff as I had apparently. Um, so the book, I hope, serves as an example of how we can engage with qualified candidates for devotional service differently than our usual assumption of we have transcendental knowledge, you don't, I'm going to tell you what the transcendental knowledge is, and now do you have any questions? So it's like a different way of, like you were saying, you ask them questions and then uh, for them to think about, and then there's a conversation that ensues. Right. It's much more of a dialogue right. than we normally have in the, in the format that we have for classes uh, or the expectation when we go to a speaking engagement. Um, that sort of thing. So how does, how do you eventually get people to, I mean, I know the end product is not like, okay, I want to shave them up and you know, 16 rounders, that's what we're going to do. It's that's like not the idea in, in a sort of sense. Like it's more like now that we've gone a number of years past, you know, the pioneering years in Krishna consciousness, it's about, um, you know, under people getting people to understand what bhakti is and how to how to make them adopt it in their life wherever they are. Mm -hmm. So, how do you how do you do that via a dialogue? Uh, you listen to what they say. You listen to what kind of questions they have, and then you invite them to continue to connect with you, correspond with you, mm. um, speak with you in one way or another. So, relationship um, is a yeah, it's, it's, it's all about building relationships. Um, it's definitely not the kind of shotgun approach of, you know, get the book in their hands by any means necessary and hope that book lands somewhere where it does something. It's very much uh, a um, go to where the people are, put something out there and see who it sticks to. And uh, the result uh, over the years has been that, yeah, a few people actually have um, taken initiation. Uh, they are chanting their 16 rounds. They're, most of them are women, so they're not shaved up. Uh, but um, Achuta Bhava is uh, a, a nice example. He was on your show, um, and he's a, become a, a good friend. Uh, he's the husband of the uh, woman whose yoga studio I was using for my own yoga teacher training program. Um, he came to me uh, really just to do yoga teacher training as a kind of one-on-one. -on -one. And every time I said something about uh, our philosophy, infused our philosophy into part of the yoga stuff we were doing, he would say, well, wait, 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 let me tell me just more about that. And this happened over and over and over and over again until finally we just stopped worrying about the yoga stuff and it became just a, you know, a bhakti yoga uh, 
program. Um, and that requires, that required you to put a lot of effort into, uh, answering questions and inquiries and developing a relationship. It's a, it's a lot more effort to do that than opposed to the other way, which is not also, I mean, there's a spectrum of, of the way we share Krishna consciousness, but like the shotgun approach, like get the book in their hand on stuff and then go on to the next person. There's a lot of effort involved in the way that you're, that you're presenting it. Yes. Answering questions is pretty much now my full-time job. Um, right. Answering questions via email, answering questions uh, during one-on-one -on -one mentorship sessions, spiritual companionship uh, is actually probably an even better word for it. Um, yeah, I'm like the answer man. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that those programs you just mentioned. I know we we'll we'll give that info to our listeners at the end, but mm -hmm. how how does that work? And 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 how did you? Um, yeah, how does that work exactly? Spiritual? Did you say spiritual? Spiritual companionship. companionship yeah. yeah. So spiritual companionship uh, means I'm offering to walk down the path of spiritual life with someone who's interested in um, the kind of companionship I have to offer, which is the exploration of the practical application of a theistic philosophy into our personal lives. Wow. Uh, there's a page on my website that specifically offers uh, spiritual companionship or mentorship. Um, and a visitor can uh, download a free guided meditation to get on my mailing list, uh, just to get a sense of, uh, or listen to some of my classes that have been recorded just to get a sense of who I am, what I have to offer. There's I'm just gonna throw it up there right now, yeah. Thank you. Um, and then there's a, a contact form and someone can write to me and people do. Uh, and I have some questions that I ask like, you know, where are you at? Um, what would you hope to get out of speaking with me on a regular basis? How did you find me? Um, that sort of thing. Wow. And if they're a good candidate um, and they think I'm someone who can be a good companion, uh, we start speaking on a regular basis. Um, and it's by donation. Uh, if I do a professional mentorship, if somebody wants to be a, a better yoga teacher and, and, you know, it's more like that, then I'll charge real money for that. But spiritual companionship, that's all done on sliding scale donation. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, just really because it's good for all parties concerned that it be like that. And what has it been your experience through the years of, uh, like, do, do people stick with it a long time or, or is it a, or is it a certain period and then they go on on their own or what has been your experience doing that? Both. Uh, there yeah. are people, um, some people that I've been, uh, working with now for almost two years, uh, on a very regular basis and have become very close to, um, others, uh, come for some time, uh, and then they're good to go. <laughs> you know, they really don't need to speak to me on, on, uh, such a regular basis. Now, uh, at that point I'm on retainer. They can just talk to me whenever they want. 
um, and they've become friends, uh, you know, not just students. Um, others, you know, go for a little while and uh, tail off. Um, so, you know, everyone's, everyone's different. But overall, um, by investing the, the time and the energy to answer questions, uh, a relationship develops. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I have the association that Tulsi Priya told me I had to create. Um, and it's worth it. It's way worth it. Um, it's, it's extraordinarily rewarding to one person at a time develop uh, relationships and, and, and a community of people who are now um, practicing on one level or another, practicing Krishna consciousness on, on, on whatever is, you know, my advice is always do what's sustainable. Right. You know, even if it's very little, doing something small but sustainable is better than being a, a flash in the pan uh, mm-hmm. with your spiritual life, you know? So, you know, just chant those two rounds before you go to work. Um, that's you have, have a certain level of detachment and patience and to, to be like, okay, I'm just going to walk with this person, whatever their speed is or whatever their, mm-hmm. however much they want to take. That's just going to be my, that's just going to be, I'm just going to be with them for that. Yeah. It's a detachment because it's not, you know, it's sometimes it's, we can have this mentality of, I mean, going back to the other, other side, it's, it's, you can have the mentality of, okay, get the volume or how many people, the quantity kind of thing. But this I feel is like very much a detached way. Like you said, one person at a time thing It's very fascinating. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's not a recruitment mission where I'm trying right. to like sign up as many people as possible as quickly as possible. Um, right. It, it is much more patient, and um, I, I find it very, very uh, personally rewarding. So, um, for devotees who have uh, a, a profession where they feel like they can be comfortable being the Hare Krishna person within that profession or within that a, a social circle or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'd be surprised who's going to pop out and, and be the one who says, you know, I'm actually really interested in, or, you know, I've actually had a problem that I've been trying to solve in my life. And you said something that really resonated with me. And maybe, can I talk to you more about like, how what I'm experiencing relates to uh, what you were talking about. Um, wow. And I, at least for me, I find that that's how I can um, serve uh, Srila Prabhupada's mission uh, rather than uh, being a, a part of the um, institutional effort. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I find that uh, by giving people an introduction to uh, Krishna consciousness outside the institution, then when they come to the temple, when they see the institution online, 
uh, and come across the more challenging or questionable things that one <laughs> is inevitably going to find. Well, now they've got some faith. Right. Now, now they, they know they can come back to me and say, uh, do you know this person that I heard about? Um, have you read Monkey on a Stick? Uh, like, right. you know, what, how should I understand this? How am I supposed to process this information? Um, That's a great segue. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I wanted to talk about the show, like rewinding a little bit about the showstoppers that you were talking about. Like, how has been your experience explaining things like that? Well, well, like controversial aspects of the books or of mm -hmm. the teachings, how has been your experience explaining that to people uh, when, you know, there's one way to look at it. Like Garuda Prabhu did a podcast on it on my show regarding that. And yep. um, I want to know your comments and, and how you navigated that. So we, um, have an aversion to granting Srila Prabhupada his humanity. Hmm. I uh, have, a, I think, a very different point of view um, about uh, controversial statements in Srila Prabhupada's books and conversations that one may come across if you get uh, as deep as the fourth canto, which plenty of my students have done, uh, or if you look up some of the conversations that you can easily find online, such like that. Yeah. Um, what I have heard um, on that podcast you mentioned and in other classes um, I regard as uh, clever, evasive maneuvers um, that rely on uh, examples bolstered by logical fallacies. Um, because the simple explanation seems to be so imp uh, palatable. Um, sometimes the simple explanation is the right explanation. And when I offer that explanation to students uh, who have come to Krishna consciousness through me, they have no trouble accepting it because it makes perfect sense and they don't have the uh, cultural internal ISKCON baggage that prevents them from accepting this simple explanation. And here's the simple explanation. Srila Prabhupada was wrong. Simple. Now, how is that possible? I was speaking with someone about this just recently, and they... Uh, we should let the listeners get up from their seats because they probably fell, fell off there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I think that a lot of devotees think this, but can't say it. And they instead want to defer to, like, it's all about context. It's all about hermeneutics. It's all about anything but that Srila Prabhupada could possibly be wrong. Right. Well, how is it possible? I mean, that's the first thing a devotee is going to think. How is that possible? 
And if Srila Prabhupada was wrong about one thing, maybe he was wrong about everything. And maybe my faith has been misplaced all this time. Maybe he was wrong about Krishna and, you know, the whole thing. I, you know, our faith shouldn't be that fragile. Hmm. There's a big difference between uh, being under the control of the material energy and being influenced by the material energy. Uh, and so that's that's what uh, this uh, friend of mine that I was speaking with recently said. And I thought, wow, that's genius. I'm like stealing that. <laughs> um, so here's here's how we how I understand this. Srila Prabhupada was a pure devotee who was transcendental to time, place, and circumstance. And he was also a human being who was a product of his time, place, and circumstance. Therefore, this is not an either-or. Either he's a pure devotee and everything he says is right, and it's just a matter of how do you understand how he's right, or he's a fallible human being who could have been wrong about one thing and therefore could have been wrong about everything. No, this is a both and uh, situation yeah. where uh, Srila Prabhupada is at the same time both things. So you can be a pure devotee and still be a human being. And that's good news for us <laughs> because if you have to stop being a human being, to be a pure devotee, then um, how are we ever going to become pure devotees? You know, Prabhupada told us, do what I do, you become like me. And we have very elevated devotees in the Hare Krishna movement who uh, are acting on the platform of pure devotional service, who have human needs. And we need for them to feel safe acknowledging their human needs in order for them to engage in the kind of self-care that will keep them with us long enough for them to take care of us. Mm. So it's not just a matter of um, recognizing Prabhupada's humanity, but recognizing the humanity of the pure devotees who are our gurus, who are our leaders, um, who, who are engaged in pure devotional service and are also human beings. Um, if Srila Prabhupada wasn't uh, a, a human being, a man of his time, place, and circumstance, he would not have been able to renovate our tradition in such a way as to make it suitable for, suitable for our time, place, and circumstance. Yeah. Um, namely Western countries in the 20th and 21st centuries. He also would not have been able to transmit uh, the message he was carrying in a language that was suitable for our comprehension. Um, it's an integral part uh, of who he was. And here's the other thing. When we deny Srila Prabhupada his humanity, we diminish rather than amplify the greatness of his accomplishment. You know, if... Uh, if he's superhuman and Krishna is doing everything, then uh, his sacrifice is performative uh, rather than substantial. 
we minimize rather than magnify his greatness when we uh, take uh, Srila Prabhupada's humanity away. Now, here's the other thing. Prabhupada never said that he was perfect in the sense of omniscient. Right. He defined perfection as uh, always being uh, engaged in service to Krishna, um, just like intelligence. He didn't define intelligence in terms of IQ. He defined intelligence in terms of whether or not you understand the difference between spirit and matter. If you know that you're not your body, you're intelligent. And if you don't know that, it doesn't matter how smart you are. So perfection, um, according to Prabhupada, was uh, uh, the attainment uh, of knowledge of the absolute truth. That is perfection, according to Prabhupada. It means you'll see God everywhere and see everything in God. That is his idea of perfection. It means to be engaged in one's original consciousness. Um, you can look these things up. If you go searching for perfection in Vedabase, you'll see that he speaks about perfection in this way, not that he never made a mistake. Hmm. In fact, uh, when he's uh, asked about the mathematics to figure out um, the distances between planets in the fifth canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, his response to that was, I'm not a mathematician. What do I know about that? <laughs> Go go ask a mathematician. And that's why we had devotees who were expert mathematicians. Yeah. Um, and then the next word that comes to mind is infallible. How can Srila Prabhupada be fallible in any way, shape, or form? Um, well, by being a human being. He never thought of infallibility, once again, as being never making a mistake. Infallible means uh, that... Uh, referring to Vedic injunction, Vedic knowledge. Now you'll notice there are some places in the Bhagavatam or in his conversations where he offers an opinion without giving any Vedic evidence to support it. What happens here is that um, Prabhupada makes a statement that doesn't hold up to his own standard of right knowledge, of pramana. There's, there's no Vedic reference, no Vedic scriptural reference. There's no reference to a previous Acharya or sage who said the same thing. Uh, there's um, no reference to, to someone uh, historically in our lineage. Um, it's not logical. Um, and it doesn't conform to our actual experience yeah therefore he's offering us an opinion as a human being uh based on his experience of being a human being who grew up in a very orthodox religious family in india uh whose education uh came from british textbooks that were written in the 19th century uh it, what's amazing uh, is just how modern Srila Prabhupada was given the uh, orthodoxy of his upbringing. Uh, the fact that he hadn't stepped foot out of India until he got on that steamship and came to America. Uh, that's amazing yeah. that he was so adaptable 
uh, that's I, the, the um, so much a part of his genius was was that um, you know he invented the Brahmacharini ashram, and you know wrote wrote back to anyone who was criticizing him. You you don't know what's going on here. You don't know how to adapt to the, the situation here. Uh, <laughs> criticize all you want, but you don't know what you're talking about. Is basically what he was saying. Yeah. Um, so. Everyone, this is a, a, in the 15th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, um, there are two classes of beings, fallible and infallible. Um, and in the material world, everyone is fallible in one form or another. In the spiritual world, infallible. Well, here we are in the material world. Um, and in the purport, Prabhupada speaks about everyone, you know, who comes into being, stays for a while, goes out of being. Um, you know, from Brahma down to the ant. Everybody. Uh, is affected, influenced by the qualities of material nature. Srila Prabhupada was definitely not controlled by the qualities of material nature. But as a human being, um, he was influenced by them. Um, and if you study the history of India during his lifetime, uh, the politics of India, you, I mean, it's good to remember that... Um, there was a tremendous amount of um, Nazi propaganda that was welcome in India since the um, enemy of my enemy is my friend uh, and the uh, British were definitely the enemy of the of India. Right. Um, you know, so when we read, you know, controversial statements about what he has to say about um, the uh, politics of uh mid 20th century uh, when we when we read about mid 20th century politics or um social statements or statements about women's psychology that clearly do not add up to uh any reasonable scrutiny and don't have vedic evidence backing them up then those those are the times when we can say you know Prabhupada got that wrong hmm. Have you, um, so your explanation to these controversial statements, um, is that, is that for all the statements you're using the similar explanation or are there other explanations for other things? Does that make sense? Uh, well, when he's, when Prabhupada is speaking, if you're made, let's put it this way. When Prabhupada is speaking theological philosophy, that's one thing. Yeah. And I don't think he made any mistakes there. Um, like with peripheral kind of relative. With, yeah. With, with, with absolute stuff, everything as far as I can see was spot on and I've never heard a better explanation for it. And I've, yeah. therefore I, I totally, and, and it all meets his criteria for backing it up. Um, whereas peripheral stuff, like you said, the, the peripheral stuff that um, was is not the theological philosophy. Uh, that's the stuff where you, we can just say, well, he was wrong. And at the same time, we can't dismiss it. You know, one of the arguments I've heard is, uh, it's not that important. There are scriptural statements. There are not scriptural statements. The scriptural statements are important. The not scriptural statements are not important. They mm -hmm. are important. And the reason they're important is because they make an impact. Um, 
there are two things, intention and impact. Now, what Prabhupada says about women or African-Americans doesn't affect me. I'm, you know, what what he says about uh, homosexuals doesn't affect me. I'm, you know, straight, white, male, American guy. Right. I don't feel it. Just doesn't, you know, but it affects a lot of other people. It affects all the women in our movement. It affects uh, all the African-American devotees. Um, It affects all the gay and trans devotees. Uh, You know, I mean, I know devotees who really, they're in male bodies. They really wish that they would feel welcome wearing a sari at the temple. Really? Oh, yeah. They're there. Wow, I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, well, now you do. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. And, but we don't, you know, I mean, we say Prabhupada built a house the whole world can live in unless you're gay or unless you're trans. Right. Uh, You know, we don't have a house for you. Uh, We don't have a room for you in that house. Right. Um, And, you know, for Prabhupada's mission to be successful amongst progressive Western spiritual but not religious identified people who, by the way, are like the biggest growing market for what we're selling. Um, we need to change that. We need to be able to address that in a really um, constructive way. And unfortunately, it's very difficult because we are an international society. So yes. Um, yes. what we say about gay people uh, is going to show up in Russia where it's illegal to be homosexual. Um, what we say about um, women uh, is going to show up in India, which frankly has a very sexist culture and remains uh, in the top 10 list of most dangerous places in the world to be a woman. Right. Um, So this is also now getting back to the question you asked me earlier, why do I operate outside of the framework of ISKCON in North America because it is constrained to the lowest common denominator of the issues that actually matter to the audience that we should be presenting our ideas to um, because on their merits, they are uh, arguments that will win and uh, ways of being that have value. What would you say to someone who says, present the philosophy how it was presented, how it's been presented for for generations, because if you change it too much or you try to pander to the audience too much, then then there can be some watering down of the philosophy or there can be some changing in the in the original mm-hmm. um the original impact of the philosophy there. And of course there's that, you know, old wine and new bottle and thing, but, but also the, I I feel that is sort of in some ways uh, a question that a valid question in some ways, like things can change over time. Of course, maybe not in mine, your lifetime, but as years and years go on. If Srila Prabhupada had taught us, using the same language that Krishna consciousness was used to teach him, we would not have understood anything. 
<laughs> Just try to read any of Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati's books. Good luck to you. Right. Uh, it can be done, but if you don't already have the context of what Srila Prabhupada has already explained to us, uh, you're probably not going to get very far. Changing the language is not the same thing as watering down or to say nothing of pandering. I don't water anything down. I don't pander to a particular uh, demographic. I don't twist the philosophy to fit into a, a place that it actually doesn't belong. I'm not changing anything. Mm. When I represent what was given to me in a language uh, or a format that's appropriate for the positive reception of the audience I'm speaking to. We don't teach using the same language that something was taught to us. So if I am just going to speak um, using the same exact words that uh, Srila Prabhupada used or senior devotees use um, in the interest of not changing anything, I'm not actually doing anybody a favor. Mm. Um, and this is also true of Sutta Goswami. When, when the sages asked Sutta Goswami to speak Srimad Bhagavatam, he didn't say, I am going to play a game of telephone and say exactly what Shukadev Goswami said to me word for word. He said, I will now try to uh, uh, speak as I have understood and as I have realized hmm. what I heard from Shukadev Goswami. So that's, I think, what we should be thinking of. We should be thinking, how, do, how, how have I understood it? How have I realized it? Now, how can I share my experience um, with others? And this is also a big difference. I never do anything that I would consider preaching. I don't preach to anybody. I share my experience and then if someone wants to learn more, I teach. But, and then I encourage. Yeah. And then a lot of people will say, well, that's just another form of preaching. No, get a dictionary and look up the words preaching, teaching, and sharing. You'll see they mean very different things. Wow. Um, I guess what devotees can get from this is like your experience. So what are the top things that one should focus on when teaching Krishna consciousness, the way you're teaching it, what it, what is, cause I know there's so many parts of the teaching, but you can emphasize certain things to a certain audience to, to kind of um, make it palatable, so to say. So mm -hmm. in your experience, what has it been your emphasis that devotees who are listening can, can, you know, get from your years of experience? The same thing that Srila Prabhupada emphasized. We are not these bodies. Right. Uh, so, you know, I mean, this goes right back to your quote. Why don't you just do the same thing that we always heard? Well, I do, actually, <laughs> because I have a guided meditation that takes us through, like, all the layers of the koshas, so the coverings of the uh, the material coverings, going from physical to metaphysical, to finally the, the uh, person who is experiencing 
the uh, uh, phenomena of being in a body and having a mind. Um, so uh, teaching a yoga class where you are the person who is observing yourself moving through the poses, uh -huh. that does two things. One, it keeps your head in the yoga practice, but two, it also makes you think I'm a person in a body who's watching my body do this stuff. Right. It becomes a very visceral experience rather than just a theoretical idea of I'm not my body. Um, so that's always my starting point. The same way that Srila Prabhupada repeated over and over and over and over again, because it just took that many repetitions for us to get it. Yeah. And then this goes back to building relationships. Find out what's going on in someone's life. What challenge are they facing? What trauma have they experienced? What doubts do they have about themselves, about uh, uh, the world, about God? Uh, you know, we talk a lot about meeting people where they are. Um, well, do it. Just, you know, meet people where they are. And then uh, once you know what people are dealing with in their lives, you know what part of our philosophy and our practice to take out of your back pocket and hand to them as a gift. Mm. That's fine. You know, and, and it seems that um, in this way of, of, of sharing and teaching, that rapid, rapid expansion is not necessarily the goal. No. The goal could be like, so, so what is your view on, on, you know, the ISKCON's being the ISKCON's rapid expansion, but also Prabhupada saying things like, now it's time to boil the milk. What's the use of creating so many members when all of them, when yeah. they don't have the correct conceptions of things? Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we are well past uh, that stage in an organization's development. You know, we're way past the rapid growth stage, but we're still in the rapid growth culture. You know, we still have the expand, 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 bigger, bigger, more, more, more mindset. Right. And we shouldn't be. In fact, I personally think we should be doing just the opposite. We should be downsizing. I Now, that sounds really heretical, you know, but actually, I think that's what we should be doing. What does that look like? Um. It means uh, developing the internal machinery of our institution so that it is more focused on taking care of the people who are already here rather than going out and broadcasting to uh, build up bigger congregations that require bigger houses of worship, which require bigger donations and festivals and blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, I was, uh, uh, a few months ago, I, I had the opportunity to speak to Kula Pradeep about this. Kula Pradeep is a mutual friend and soon to be a little bit more on your side. <laughs> um, and we were talking about this. We were talking about this idea that, um, you know, the focus uh, needs to be reoriented away from uh, 
more outreach and more reaching into our own community uh, yeah. to, to meet the needs of uh, more, to better meet the needs uh, of the devotees who are already here and need more from their institution um, and their um, local temples than they're currently getting. Mm. What do you think is lacking from the devotees who are currently here? It's a, it's a little hard for me to say because I'm not, um, you know, I came, I, I came from outside, you yeah. know, and I'm, and I'm yeah. old and I don't really need much. Um, or at least I'm under the illusion that I don't need much. Maybe, um, <laughs> devotees who came along later and particularly devotees who grew up in the Hare Krishna movement, um, like yourself, you know, you would know more about this than me. Um, I think that um, what I'm hearing, you know, the downside of being off on my own, uh, you know, just a loose cannon out, out, out and around there. You know, the downside is that I sometimes suffer from a devotee association deficit disorder. <laughs> um, and in the last couple of years, I've made more of an effort to get involved with uh, projects where there are other devotees. I'm not a good team player. At least I don't think I am. Um, other devotees may disagree as I try to become a better team player, make a contribution to other people's uh, projects and not just my own. What I'm hearing is uh, that um, devotees especially devotees who grew up in our movement, uh, have a kind of schizophrenia, they're, like they're leading a double life, you know, like they have their devotional lives and their devotional friends, and then they go out into the world and they yeah. go to a job and they don't reveal anything about their personal lives because they, their coworkers would think they're from another planet. Uh, and so you may have, I mean, you have a real job, you, you know, you may experience this yourself, you know, it's not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm betting you put your tea lock on when you got home from work. <laughs> well, I, I work from right here, but yeah, I did. Well, if, if you, yeah, that's right. Everything has changed. Everybody's like yes, uh, working from home now. Yeah. But anyway, that's one of the things I hear is that um, devotees who are like, say, you know, one or two generation removed from me feel um, a kind of... Um, lack of integration in their lives. Mm. And I know that there is some uh, uh, initiatives to uh, try to uh, develop elements of ISKCON that can provide seed capital for devotee businesses and, you know, so that, you know, people can earn a living and still feel like they have an integrated life, you know, centered on devotional service rather than being one person at work and another person at home, that sort of thing. Uh, other than that, um, I'm not really sure what the specifics are, but I do hear um, the, the, the rumblings of, of discontent and, you know, especially uh, you know, there's a generation of devotees who were traumatized by being brought up in the Hare Krishna movement. 
And it was precisely because uh, the culture was, it was more important to go out and make other people devotees than to give your kids a stable home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now, you know, we see that that probably wasn't the best way to think about that. Um, and so uh, being not so enthusiastic about outreach, uh, uh, you know, it's entirely understandable why an entire generation of devotees would be thinking, no, 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 let's like take care of everyone who's here, uh, focus on building strong families and such like that, um, as opposed to focusing on uh, bringing in more congregation members. When you develop like the devotees we already have, then you run into issues of like the controversial subjects of the, of, of like inward controversy, like inside controversy, such as philosophical things. The G did the Jiva fall from the uh, spiritual world or Bhakti's inherency or whatever it may be. What's your viewpoint on, on those things? I know you probably don't even, you're probably so far removed from those things. No, no, no. I listen to your podcast. I know. <laughs> but but yeah. I mean, as far I, as like a daily kind of, or not daily, but like on a regular basis. So I, I, this is a different, a different kind of problem in my opinion, mm -hmm. because as someone who is focused on getting our ideas out into the marketplace of ideas, um, when someone takes an interest and then looks inside the Hare Krishna movement, they find that uh, Hare Krishna devotees seem to be more concerned about how many jivas can dance on the head of a pin as opposed to how are the people in Flint, Michigan ever going to get clean drinking water. Mm. Right. And so, you know, this is why uh, we tend to be irrelevant. And so the inward focus on obtuse theological ideas um, uh, to me, that just seems like a way of hiding from the world uh, and occupying ourselves with things that um, ensure our irrelevance to, to other people. So here's a question for you. Um, let, us, uh, let us assume that your spiritual practice right now uh, consists of following four regulative principles and chanting Hare Krishna. Fair enough? Yeah. Okay. Let's just say that the jiva has fallen from the Brahma Jyoti. How does that change your sadhana? Not really... I mean, at this moment in time, not really at all. <laughs> Change it at all, does it? Okay, now let's just say that the jiva somehow or other um, fell from the spiritual world. How does that change your sadhana? Um, theologically, it could change. It could like bring up questions of, of like, Okay, if the Bhagavad Gita says no one falls, then how did I fall? How does it change your spiritual practice? Um, it doesn't really. Yeah, it doesn't really. 
which is why it doesn't really matter. Our spiritual practice is going to be the same one way or the other. And therefore, the question, in my view, is a distraction. If it serves any practical purpose at all, it serves the purpose of undermining our faith in the founder Acharya of ISKCON, who quite plainly said that we are all originally Krishna conscious entities. And somehow or other, we have come in contact with material nature. This Krishna consciousness can be revived. I think it's pretty clear. And I don't think Srila Prabhupada was saying one thing when he actually meant another thing, but because we're not too bright, uh, he twisted it this way, but what he really meant was something else. No, we, Prabhupada was very consistent, if nothing else. So I'm not buying it. That, right. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, that we jump over uh, our lineage all the way to Jiva Goswami and then pick nits about what he said in order to come up with this alternative explanation. And the last thing I'll say about this is I have been in the audience of devotees from, let's say, um, cousin lineages right. uh, who could have spoken to an audience of disciples, of Prabhupada disciples, about anything having to do with Krishna's pastimes, Lord Chaitanya's pastimes, the glorious aspects of uh, our philosophy, and instead chose to minimize Srila Prabhupada's standing um, as uh, the founder Acharya of this kind. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, sentiment about, hey, can't we all just get along? <laughs> uh, I grew up in an age where my directive was, uh, as a kid, was go out and play. And out on the playground, if there was a problem, we had to negotiate that problem ourselves. There was no adult mediating anything for us. And if there was a fight, well, there was a fight. And then there wasn't a fight anymore. And then we figured out how to play together somehow or other. But like, you know, I didn't feel obliged to like every other kid that, you know, was in my age group. Right. Learn to live with conflict. <laughs> I, um, Going back to what you were saying, like, I don't want to get into the whole thing right now because we could just give you another two hours. But yeah, yeah, uh, that could be a whole other show. Right. But um, like how it has to do with one's spiritual practice, like if someone's reading the Shastra, then they will come across these things. Both whether whatever controversial thing it is, they might come across two things were said about a certain topic. And mm -hmm. so to, and to harmonize yeah. those things. It's sometimes necessary, I think, to dig a little bit deeper and see, okay, how do we harmonize when Srila Prabhupada, Prabhupada might have said two things about a subject? Yes. Where I think it's important. Right. I, and, and I agree. Yeah. Um, because things have to make sense. It's reasonable to uh, expect a philosophy to make sense. Uh, and therefore, if you have something that seems like a contradiction, you need to resolve that, that contradiction. So the way Prabhupada did it in this case was with his example of the dream of the tiger. 
um, when pressed on this point, he basically said, you fall, but you don't fall. Nobody ever falls from Vaikuntha. You have not fallen. You appear to have fallen because you are dreaming. Uh, so you have not left, but in this dream state, you appear to have fallen. So he's basically has said, um, you know, it's a both and situation. You know, mm -hmm. nobody mm -hmm. falls, and yet the experience of having fallen is still possible. Right. And then he gave the example of the dream of being chased by the tiger, and you, actually, there's no tiger. You're you're safe in bed. <laughs> right, right. So I have always thought that was a very reasonable explanation. We have trouble with both and. We think everything has oh, to totally. be or. Totally. <laughs> and both yeah. and is is requires a little more nuance. Uh, you know, we don't like things to be complicated. We like things to be simple. Either or is simple. Both and requires a little more thoughtfulness. So this is good when we have these kinds of discussions about um, which, you know, how do we resolve this contradiction? This is what Prabhupada called uh, philosophical speculation as opposed to mental speculation. You know, mm -hmm. we look at the Shastra, we look at the Acharyas, um, we, we look at what makes sense, uh, and, and the, the act of trying to figure it out is devotional service to Krishna. Yeah, right. That's a great point. Well, um, Hare Kirtan Prabhu, I just want to uh, thank you for coming on, and this was a fantastic conversation. Do you have any concluding words for our, our listeners? Sorry to put you on the spot there. Just chant Hare Krishna, and your <laughs> life will be successful. <laughs> wonderful wonderful so um maybe we can do another podcast about um any specific topic maybe if our listeners want to hear from you i know i always do like introductory kind of very high level with people mm -hmm. but then when you want to get into kind of the nitty-gritty about things would be really fun i think i would love to do that it, you know it just so happens that i have a second book coming out oh uh, and perhaps, uh, if you would be so kind, uh, to invite me back sometime, we can talk sure. about that book along with, um, anything else you want to talk about. It's always What's a pleasure. That book to about? Yeah. Yeah. What's that book about? Uh, it's about the Bhagavad Gita and how to enter into the world of the Bhagavad Gita and look at the world through the lens of the Gita rather than look at the Gita through the lens of the world and what a difference that makes. And then how to integrate the teachings of the Gita into your life so that uh, it becomes uh, a real experience uh, rather than uh, just a theoretical one. Fantastic. So if you want to get in touch with uh, Hari Kirtan Prabhu, you can, get it, you can get him on Instagram, at hari.kirtana. Uh, for those of you on just audio, it's at H-A-R-I dot K-I-R-T-A-N-A. And then you could see his website here, uh, www.hari-kirtana.com. That's where you can find all your, um, uh, the things that you're doing regarding the um, different offerings that you're giving for, for people, right? Yeah, everything is there. The um, uh, classes that I offer, the uh, mentorships that I offer, um, any kind of public speaking that I do, um, all, uh, everything is there. Oh, and uh, there's also a YouTube channel. So I guess if they search yeah. your name, uh, they can find your YouTube channel as well. And I'll put it in the comments uh, when this episode comes out. So we'll yeah. be able to find Yeah, that. I have a YouTube channel where I have uh, uh, Bhagavad Gita classes. And also um, I've started to do conversations 
with uh, people that I think will be of uh, interest to oh, my audience. The, the first of whom, uh, the first uh, conversation is with uh, Pranada Kamtwa, uh, author of another really, really excellent book, Bhakti Shakti. Wow. Well, Harikrishna Prabhu, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. And I really appreciate the way you teach, you the share uh, Krishna consciousness, developing relationships, uh, putting a focus on emphasis on that, answering questions. I think that's just a brilliant way. And I think a lot of devotees need to uh, take notes here in the way we share Krishna consciousness with others, especially people in our immediate circle. Like you said, you know, the people you work with or someone may want to Someone may say to you, like, I was looking for something like this, you know, and someone who you may not even expect who's like very near to you. And it's like I have a neighbor who's um, who's kind of a, kind of very inquisitive and things I didn't know until I kind of like started speaking to him. And so uh, that those are great lessons. I thank you for everything that you do. And and I hope that you can. Um, I hope this podcast can um, help devotees to. Uh, see devotees like yourself who are working on the outside a little bit of the institution, but also have so much to offer uh, to the you know devotees who are uh, working within it. So thank you again for for joining me. Well, thank you very much for all of your very encouraging words. I really appreciate it, and uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. So thank you once again for inviting me to be your guest. Okay, Hari Bol, uh, Prabhu, stay on. I'm just gonna turn off the live. Hari Krishna, everyone. Okay. Krishna, Hare Krishna. Krishna, 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 Krishna.